Welcome to Roundtables on Race, the podcast that seeks to explore the relationship between race and the many facets of our society. I'm your host, the Reverend Kathy Walker. This first season is an exploration of race and the news media. And today we're taking a look at the relationship between the news media and us, the audience, and the consumers of information. We're delighted today to be joined by three guests whose insights, expertise, and credentials on this topic are so extensive, we could spend the entire episode just trying to list them all. Jake Nelson is an assistant professor at Arizona State University's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication and a Knight News Innovation Fellow with Columbia Journalism School's Tau Center for Digital Journalism. He uses qualitative and quantitative methods to study the changing relationship between journalism and the public and is the author of Imagined Audiences, How Journalists Perceive and Pursue the Public, released earlier this year. Welcome, Jacob. Thank you so much for having me. Tom Rosensteel is an author, journalist, and executive director of the American Press Institute. One of the most recognized thinkers in the country on the future of news, Tom also serves as the executive director of the Media Insight Project, a joint research initiative between the American Press Institute and the APNORC Center for Public Affairs Research. The objective of this project is to conduct high quality, innovative research meant to inform the news industry and the public about various important issues facing journalism and the news business. We're so glad to have you with us today, Tom. My pleasure to be here with you, Kathy. Jeff Godfrey is a senior researcher at Pew Research Center, where he focuses on US public opinion about journalism and the news media. He is the author of a number of studies, including about political polarization and media habits, news and social media, millennials and news, political news satire, and journalism, election, journalism elections. Welcome, Jeffrey. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I want to begin by asking Jake a question, because the first thing that I get, got enamored by is seeing that you um, are affiliated with the Wal Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. And I think especially for people of my generation, when you hear the name Walter Cronkite, it brings back and transports us back to a time when I think people had a much different relationship with news and newscasters. So I want to begin by asking you, um, what does that mean? And particularly as you have students to come into um, a school with the name that carries such a prestigious name like Walter Cronkite. Uh, that's a great question. I will begin my answer by offering this uh, qualifier, which is that uh, I did not grow up watching Walter Cronkite. So my understanding of his appeal and the appeal of that kind of newscaster is something that I've learned rather than experienced firsthand. Um, but that being said, you know, my understanding of the allure of the Walter Cronkite, you know, dispassionate, neutral, just the facts approach to news uh, is that um, it really what it is more than anything else is a, a romanticized notion of a time when journalists did not have to ask themselves questions about how they do their jobs the way that they do now. Um, so it's not to say that journalism was inherently more trustworthy back then because of anything that journalists were doing differently. It's just that because of a lot of things, um, for example, because there was less po political polarization, there was there were fewer news outlets available in general. Um, and there was less of an economic need among journalists to improve their relationship with the public. Journalists could take a lot about what they did for granted and just assume that they were doing everything right. Um, that's not to say that uh, there isn't a huge issue with the way the journalists are trusted now and that that issue does seem to be much stronger than it was before. Um, 
but I'm always cautious when talking about this idea of, you know, Walter Cronkite as being the end all be all in terms of just how up, appealing that kind of journalism was, is that um, I think that oftentimes people say they miss that just the facts approach. And what I think they're really saying is um, they don't like how their relationship with journalism is now, but they don't necessarily know what needs to be done to make it better. That's a great point. So let me turn to you then, Tom, because obviously, according as I understand it, you provide a lot of research and information to news media outlets about their audiences. And so one of the questions is, how do you even track the views of listeners and, and, and viewers to provide this information to news media organizations? Well, that's also a really good question because, uh, and, and uh, Jacob's book, you know, the imagined audience, um, any data you have about uh, your audience is a proxy for and a guess about what it is that uh, people want, um, uh, you know, and, and why they want it and, and what they're thinking when they engage with it. I just want to go back for one second to um, uh, your first point about uh, the, the high trust of, uh, of uh, uh, networks and, and mass media in general in the, in the Cronkite era. Um, it's important to remember that network television news didn't really start the 30 minute newscasts that we all know and which are now kind of antiquated, didn't start till 1963. So uh, in the early 70s, when, uh, you know, when data showed up, survey data that Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America, um, the idea that you could see the news of the day for a half an hour at night was a pretty new phenomenon. It, it was about as old as social media is now. And people were thrilled by the idea that you could see the news, uh, not just see it once a week in a newsreel in a movie theater or hear it on the radio. Um, so the, it was the new, new thing. Uh, and 70% uh, of the households that, were, uh, that uh, had their televisions on at the dinner hour back then, were watching one of the three nightly newscasts. So you were really grateful to be able to see the civil rights protests and Vietnam War and um, a nightly update about Watergate. Uh, and you, you, there was a lot of gratitude towards the people who were, who were bringing it to you. The trust data, uh, the, the decline in trust and the so-called credibility crisis that we're all talking about here, began to be traced in the 1980s. Um, that's when we begin to see trust decline uh, by various measures. And there are a lot of different measures and ways of measuring that. Well, what was happening in the 1980s that, caught, that, that might correlate to that? Um, one was the advent of cable television. So suddenly people had choices. They, they weren't just three things to watch. Uh, 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 you know, three, three, news channel, three channels with news and a kid's show on the fourth channel. Um, you also had uh, the advent of talk radio and the deregulation of media, which meant that the fairness doctrine and the equal time rule and other things that were built into broadcast regulations uh, were let go because cable was coming in and they already knew the internet was coming in. Um, and so shows like uh, 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 Sean Hannity or what you see on Fox News or most of talk radio would, have, would actually have been uh, forbidden by regulation. You couldn't have a, t a radio channel that was entirely one partisan to one side, uh, show after show after show without equal time and, and things like that. So we created a situation where at the time that people began to have choice, we also created the conditions for partisan media. Now I'll get to your question, Kathy. Um, how is it that news organizations know what, what, how do they measure their audience and know what they're looking at? Um, that's evolving very rapidly. Um, in, in the early days of the internet, we measured page views. Why did we measure page views? Because we wanted to know how many eyeballs might be looking at a piece of content. Why did we care about that? Because we were trying to subsidize media through digital advertising. Uh, if we knew how many eyeballs were looking at a piece of content, we could know how much to charge for an ad. Today, the economic model for media is shifting probably more heavily toward consumer revenue. Will I subscribe? Will I buy 
uh, a subscription or make a donation or become a member to this news organization. And the way you measure what drives that kind of engagement is not page views. It's we're learning now all kinds of other things. Uh, how many, how frequently do you come in a month? Uh, uh, how often do you come in a day? Uh, do you share the things that you see from a particular news organization? Will you sign up for a newsletter? Will I give you my email? Um, do I want to have alerts? These are all indicators of loyalty that will lead to my pain and are more important in many cases now than, um, than page views. So the way that news organizations with whom we work measure their path to, sustain, to sustainability is now a, a whole different set of metrics than it was five years ago online. And um, the game, by the way, is online. Um, uh, the future of newspapers and the future of magazines and maybe the future of even broadcast terrestrial radio is increasingly going to be digital. And uh, there may, your, your, your daily newspaper may only be printing on Sunday in three, four years because it's, uh, it, it's more economical and more profitable for them to uh, send you the product digitally, um, have you subscribe and get a kind of Sunday magazine. Uh, so digital is the key measurement that we are all going to be talking about, regardless of the platform that you're on now. And I'm going to come to you in just a minute, Jeff, but Tom, this makes me ask another question. So as we look at um, how now people are measuring um, interactions between their audience and their and their organization, how does that influence the material that we see or hear or read um, on a daily basis or even hour by hour. Yeah. Well, that varies a lot by the, uh, by the model of, uh, of whether you're local media or national. If you are, um, uh, if you're the Charlotte Observer uh, or the Raleigh uh, News and Observer, the News and Observer in Raleigh, you want a wide swath of your community to read you uh, or to interact with you. And that's different pockets of folks. Um, uh, you know, you might have people who are uh, sports fans and people who are uh, fans of, uh, of your opinion co content who will become subscribers and fan. There are people who, who are interested in the art scenes. So you have little, little cohorts and knots of people that you are trying to understand and there are multiple motivations and you are trying to create a kind of pluralistic collection. Um, if you don't do that, you're not gonna have enough uh, of an audience. Um, if you are Fox News or CNN, or even to some degree, the New York Times, you're not trying to get 30 or 40% of a market. You're trying to get 1% of a nation um, or 1% of many different markets. And um, the economic model for that uh, particularly in cable today, is partisanship. They are focused on politics almost exclusively, except when there's a hurricane or some weather event or, or you know, immediate disaster. Um, they are focused pretty exclusively on politics. And uh, you have this sort of um, irony or paradox in which you produce content that attracts a certain political audience and then you need to keep doing that so that you don't alienate the audience that you've collected. So you become addicted in, in, to some degree, particularly in this national economic model, to the audience that you have drawn to you through outrage. And in television in particular, the notion of the lead-in is a very important concept. And that is that the show at eight o'clock um, uh, lose audience from the show at seven o'clock? Did the show at nine o'clock build on the audience it inherited at eight o'clock? And that's a key measurement in, in television land. And that adds even more to the notion that you become addicted to the audience that you've got. Uh, and if you suddenly change directions or change subjects or do something different than is the reason they're there, that becomes very, very uh, difficult. I, I can well imagine. So that brings me to you, Jeff, because um, obviously Pew Research um, is sort of the, the Bible of 
all things research. Right? I mean, people count on uh, pure research for a lot of data. And one of the things that I was particularly drawn to recently was an article that, or research that you produced about um, the news media and how different segments, the Blacks, Hispanics, Whites, um, all feel misunderstood by the news media, but for very different reasons. And I just wondered if you could just expound on that a little bit for us today. Absolutely, and thank you for those compliments. I hope I can live up to that. Um, so um, absolutely, and, and right before I, I get into that, I just wanna to touch upon something sort of that, that, that Tom touched upon was that there are various different ways that you can measure trust in the news media. And to sort of speak to that more broadly is that trust in the news media is a really multifaceted concept. Um, there's a number of aspects that can speak to um, the broader concept of trust, whether it's levels and confidence that the news media will act in the best interest of the public or ethical standards or perceptions of transparency or feeling of connectedness. And that sort of brings me into exactly what you're asking about is one of those areas is the sense of personal connection in some way being, you know, feeling whether you're actually understood by the news media, whether people like you are being understood. And so just like you said, we asked this question, um, whether people actually thought that people like them were being um, understood or misunderstood by the news media. And most Americans say that they do feel misunderstood. Um, and across racial and ethnic groups, we see that a majority do again say across these groups, do say, that they do feel misunderstood. Now we followed that up with a question. We wanted to dig in deeper the, the, the most recent time that we did this, that we asked this. Um, and we said, we want to know why do you feel misunderstood? What is it that you feel misunderstood the most about? And we got very different answers um, based on the different racial and ethnic groups. Um, we saw that um, black Americans were more likely than white Americans and Hispanic Americans to be saying that it is their personal characteristics that they think are being most misunderstood. Um, white Americans were more likely than the other racial and ethnic groups to be saying that it is their um, political beliefs that are being misunderstood. And um, Hispanic Americans were saying that is their personal interests that are feeling misunderstood. So there are very different reasons. This overall sense of being misunderstood, yes, is um, shared among various population segments, but we really see the reason why that's happening, that feeling, really different answers based on the different groups. So I guess then the question is, um, as long as, well, first that everybody's feeling misunderstood, I guess that's a great equalizer. But the, on the other hand, um, as people, as news organizations are trying to build audience um, in this very sort of fractured way, because you're looking for, um, if you're doing this kind of polarized news, right, or polarized programming, um, obviously you're going after a particular audience. So how will we, how do we even um, find ways to build trust within these various communities um, when I'm like, when certain organizations are clearly not targeting particular particular uh, groups of people? That's a great question. And um, overall in a lot of the work that we've done um, more broadly, just to bring it back just a second, is in a lot of the work that we've done at the Pew Research Center, um, we've seen um, that Americans just continue to have this really complicated relationship with the news media broadly. Um, is uh, like we've sort of talked about levels of trust across a number of areas, a number of metrics. Um, it, it tends to be more negative than positive, though um, there are is some optimism that trust in the institution can improve. Um, and there is this sense that some level of skepticism, granted what level that is, is very hard to measure, um, is um, important of a well-functioning society. That said, where are there areas that um, the, the public does see that there are places to grow? And one of them brings us back to this question of connectedness, um, that um, most Americans do want this sense of connectedness to their news organizations, to the sources that they're getting their news from. 
and um, in a number of ways at the local level, we've seen that, for example, to be um, engaged in the communities in some ways, um, to um, know the history of the communities that you're covering, for example, at the local level, um, nationally to feel valued and so forth. Um, but Americans overall aren't sensing this sense of connectedness that they are craving. And that's one area that we definitely see that happening. Um, and then one specific really interesting area that we looked at most in, in, a, in a recent study that we did on trust in the news media um, was looking at um, what are the various aspects of the coverage that connects people to these organizations. Um, and overall, we saw when we look at broadly, when we look at um, Americans overall, we see things like the journalists being friendly and warm or sharing values um, are things that draw people to news organizations. But again, we see really drastic differences based on different populations. So for example, we see that black Americans are much more likely to sense this um, importance of representation in the coverage um, and in the newsroom itself in what draws them to a news source. So for example, we saw that black Americans were more likely to be saying that um, what connects them is that the news coverage is covering people like them. Um, black and Hispanic Americans were more likely to be saying that um, it was important to them that the journalists look or sound like them. So there are very different answers that we're getting for different populations that would tie them to bring them to various sources. Um, Jake, you are forming our budding journalists. How are you preparing students um, to go out into this um, new model, I guess, um, of, of journalism? And are they um, looking at being very specialized, I guess, in the types of news media organizations that they will have an interest in? And does the school prepare them in this sort of specialized fashion? Or is it is it a more generalized and then people just move, move about with time? So that's a great question. Uh, first, <laughs> I spent a lot of time talking to my students about data that I gather from API and from Pew. So it's really cool to have uh, Tom and Jeff on this call with us because um, their work is really invaluable to me as I go about teaching my students about what the news media landscape looks like now and, and how they should be best prepared to enter it. And I have to say that I, I approach teaching aspiring journalists very differently from how I was trained. So I went and got my, I got my journalism degree between 2006 and 2010 at a time where really everyone in journalism was talking about the economic toll of the internet. And there were not many answers. Um, I mean, Tom's already sort of alluded to uh, the way in which journalism has attempted to overcome the economic obstacles that were presented because of the transition to the internet. And I think he's absolutely right that in a, a short amount of time, we will see much fewer print products than we are currently seeing as everything moves to be digitally based. Between 2006 and 2010, those were also conversations that were just beginning. And it was a lot of, you could feel the panic in journalism classrooms in a way that I don't feel was very helpful for aspiring journalists because they just sort of felt like they were being, uh, I, I don't know, I almost sort of, uh, it, it was a, a, a sense of heightened hysteria that was not, <laughs> it, wasn't, it was not encouraging. You know, it sort of felt like, okay, well, I guess we're gonna graduate and we'll try to work with what's left. Um, I, I try not to take that approach with my students. What I try instead is to sort of say to them, you know, all we really know right now is that, as Jeff was saying, um, people, regardless of who they are, feel distrustful of journalists. And as Tom was saying, there's still a lot of uncertainty about how to pay for news and what revenue model will make news organizations sustainable. And what I feel it's my responsibility is to sort of offer to students a lay of the land in terms of the experimentation that's going on to earn back audience trust and to earn audience revenue. Um, but 
all the while doing so, making it very clear to my students that this is a time of experimentation, you know, more, more than any other that I, at least from what I can tell, having, you know, done research into the news media environment, this is a moment where foundations that fund journalism organizations and journalism innovation, um, you know, audience metrics, service providers and platforms and tools, um, and universities who are researching journalists and audiences, um, and journalists and audiences themselves, they all, in my opinion, have sort of embraced this attitude of, well, who knows what's going to work? Let's just try stuff and see what, what clicks. And I think that as scary as that is, it's also really exciting for students because it means that they have an opportunity to really make their voices heard in terms of trying new things. Um, they don't have to just enter into the news media environment being told that here's what's worked before, so you got to keep doing it and just keep your head down and work your way up the ladder. That doesn't exist anymore as a trajectory, really. Um, so instead, it's sort of up to them to find to find their own paths. Um, sorry, that's a, a very long answer that doesn't even really get to the other parts of your question. I'll very briefly just say that in terms of preparing students for what kind of organization they're going to work for, um, I do say, and this is very different from how I was trained, I say you should pay attention to how your news organization that hires you pays their bills. Are they relying on digital ad revenue? And if so, um, how much are they really getting from that and how sustainable a revenue model is, is that going to be for them? Are they switching to audience support? And if so, how are they going about cultivating that audience loyalty? Does it seem like they're going to make that work in the long run, especially at a moment when so many news organizations are pursuing that revenue model and you know, at a certain point, you're going to find that audiences are just unwilling to pay for that many different news organizations. It's not so dissimilar from streaming services. You know, not everyone's going to pay for Hulu and Netflix and Disney Plus. Um, the more players that enter the space, the more competitive it's going to get. Um, and finally, are these news organizations funded by foundations, which are increasingly influential in 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 uh, the revenue models that journalists rely on? And if so, um, how enduring is that foundation funding going to be? Um, really, I just ask students to keep these in mind because I want them to be thinking about how likely it is that the job that they currently have will be there for three, four, five years out because um, not to make them panic, but just to get them realizing that it is a really uh, unstable and uncertain space that they're entering. And more than any other time, in my opinion, it pays to be thinking about how your news organization makes its money so that you know what you can and can't depend on moving forward. Well, Tom, that seems to bring up a real conflict, right? So as at a time when we're trying to figure out how to build trust with audiences and we're measuring what it is that audiences want, what the viewer wants in its news media organizations. And if on the other hand, we're, um instilling this notion in the people who are going to work for those organizations to really look at the revenue stream and how revenue is generated for a news organization so where do those two things intersect so that everybody is feeling like they're getting what they need the organization is getting the revenue however if it's digital which could just move people from you know, being um, on television, you know, face to face with a camera and doing more digital outlet outlay um, versus, but still doing it in such a way that the audience can connect with that organization and feel like they're they're listening and being provided news and information that they can rely on. Well, I actually think that this is a point where there's good news actually for for media. Um, the uh, 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 traditionally in the 20th century, and particularly in, in the United States, even more so than in other countries, our media was financed by advertising. And that's a bank shot, okay? You, call, you create an audience and then you loan it to the advertiser. <laughs> uh, and uh, your customer in that, uh, in that 20th century sequence was actually the advertiser. Uh, your consumer was the audience but the audience didn't pay you. In other words, newspapers made about 20% of their revenue from subscriptions and 80% from advertising. 
broadcast television made 100% of its, of its revenue from advertising. Um, so you were, there was a tension there where you were trying to serve the needs of the advertiser and you weren't really studying all that carefully what, and it was hard to study anyway, what attracted the audience. Back in that model, media or journalism was a product that you were loaning out to an advertiser. In the new model where you're gonna be paid primarily, your, your revenue is primarily gonna come from the consumer, you really need to know what the consumer cares about. And instead of being simply a product, journalism becomes a service. How can I help you live your life? Uh, if I can do that, if I can answer your questions, uh, uh, you might consider me value, what we're doing valuable enough that you'll pay for it, or some percentage of you will, somewhere between you know, two and 10% of my audience might pay for it. Um, that's a very different mindset. I remember A.G. Solzberger, the pub, now publisher of the, of the New York Times, saying to me, we now, this is a few years ago, we now make about two thirds of our revenue from subscriptions. That means that two thirds of the people in this building are, have the same mission, by which he meant the journalists and the business people had the same mission, creating journalism that is valuable enough people will pay for it. And the third that, were, that had a different mission in the building were the advertising people who were trying to figure out what advertisers wanted. Um, so that's a moment of optimism uh, that uh, in, in how we measure things. One tension with the uh, trust issue is that, um, and we see it in a growing amount of data, is that journalists believe that they're virtuous. They think that uh, they are serving the public, uh, they do what they do in the public interest, and they imagine that the public understands that and understands them. And there's more and more research all the time that shows that not only does the public um, not understand a lot of terminology that we use, um, you know, nobody knows what an op-ed is, um, you know, a, 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 a small minority of Americans know what an op-ed is, or even what an editorial is versus a, a news story. Um, uh, we have a lot of antiquated print terminology that we use in, in journalism. But even more fundamentally, we did a study earlier this year uh, in which we uh, asked people uh, what they thought of five fundamental values of journalism. These values were um, that the people in power needed to be monitored. Another was um, that the way to solve problems in society and make society better was to spotlight the problems, to, to kind of be a social critic. Uh, I won't go through all five, but the point is that uh, using a model that, uh, 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 and an approach that mimicked uh, moral foundational theory research, we found that um, uh, uh, only one of, only two of these five uh, journalism values that were very fundamental had majority support of, 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 of Americans. Um, that people were suspicious of, of these values. They thought, yeah, okay, we, people in power need to be monitored, but you can also get in the way of their doing their jobs. And I'm, I'm, I have a tension about the way I view this uh, notion that journalists think is so fundamental. So one of the problems with trust and with winning over people is we think we're doing our jobs and they understand that and it's universal. And like we did the story and showed that this guy was a bad guy. And a lot of people think, wow, you're just negative. You're attacking my guy. Uh, why don't you ever celebrate what's good in society? And that goes along with, the stuff that Jeff was talking about, how come I never see myself or people like me? So part of winning trust is not just explaining ourselves, but actually changing the way we go about doing what we do. Stop uh, 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 not oversimplifying things and turning everything into a bumper sticker version of reality. People have choices and they're more sophisticated. So, um, you know, the, the future, sorry, Jacob, but the future is up to you to actually reinvent our business uh, if we're going to have this trust, I think. If I could follow up on that a little bit. So one of the areas that Tom touched upon and also Jake touched upon is the is the financial structure and how um, news organizations are making their 
revenue and money. Um, and, and tying that back to trust again is one of the areas that we did see quite a, a big concern among the public is in this general transparency. Um, and one of these areas that was what rose up above everything else is where are these organizations actually getting their money from? Americans don't think that news organizations are being transparent um, in their financial structure and where their money is coming from. And beyond that, um, they also tend to think that there are financial um, um, there are financial um, impacts on the news that they're getting, that there are other institutions or organizations in some way because of the financial structure in some way that is influencing their news. And so while there may be some good news there um, that Tom was speaking about and so forth, there is the sense among the public about that news organizations are being opaque um, in, what they, in, in how they're actually creating the news and the news that they're actually getting. So one of the things um, for you, Jeff and Tom, you know, as we talk about um, news organizations, that's really concerning is that as people are talking about alternative facts, and we don't even all as a nation or, you know, as a society anymore, uh, uh, particularly attach ourselves to one agreed upon set of facts. How does that skew your research? And how does that um, give you any indication of what it is people are looking for in terms of uh, in terms of news and information. Well, I think this is a big question, not just for journalism, but for democracy. Um, in the research, when you ask people about trust uh, in news media using diff many different measures, um, if you ask them about the news media they use most often, um, you get different answers than if you ask them about the news media in general and. Um, uh, there's higher levels of trust. Not per, it's not great, but it's but it's about twice as good uh, 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 when they talk about the news media they use most often, and and more often than not that is local. Um, it may be Fox and it may be MSNBC, but in a lot of cases it's local. And I think that the um, you know if there's a way forward here, uh, it is in finding the common ground that people in, in, uh, in a geographic local community uh, share. You know, if you live in Dallas, um, you're all worried about where the freeway, new freeway is going to be put uh, or, you know, where the stadium is going to be built. Um, those are shared concerns. Um, you're, you're not living in, in alternate realities the way you are uh, when you flip through, uh, uh, you know, the television dial on, and see cable news. Um, there's an old saying in politics, if you want to find common ground, talk to mayors, because they have common problems that they have to solve, regardless of whether they're Democrats or Republicans, you know, they better to pick up the garbage and move the snow, or they're not going to get reelected. And that's not a part, and that's not a, you know, it's not a wedge issue from, so I think that it, we're also seeing research that shows that if local uh, newspapers stop covering national events in their uh, editorials, their local editorials, that they just write about local issues, that they get higher engagement and higher trust for that content. So they can leave uh, that editorializing about national stuff to the national publications. It's, you know, I, I think it's uncertain that this is gonna be a, a solution um, or a pathway to solution for media, but, there's growing signals that um, localism um, is, a, is a place where we can find um, uh, a, 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 some common space. You know, journalism, fundamentally, what it does is it creates a common, a public square. And if it's not doing that, uh, um, uh, it, it's very hard to see how it serves democracy. Mm. Kathy, just to, to, to take it a little bit of a different area, is the question about alternative facts. I kind of don't even want to go closer and just talk about facts. Um, and so um, we know from a, some of our work that the two sides say that they can't even agree on what the actual facts are. Um, and so um, something that's really interesting, sort of picking up on this polarization and splintered audiences and so forth, um, is it is this agreement on what the actual facts around issues and events actually are. Um, and what we see is that um, when you ask people if something is factual, if something is opinion, um, based on whatever the answer actually is, um, that answer can really differ based on their political beliefs. Um, if 
um, someone sees a statement that is more favorable to their side, um, they will be more likely to classify that as a factual statement. If they see it as um, more favorable to the other side, they're more likely to classify that as an opinion statement. So um, there is a huge amount of onus on audiences when they're going through statements and snippets and news clips and so forth in venues in which you don't get a lot of context um, to be able to make these quick decisions. But their political predispositions can really influence whether they actually think that's a fact or not. Um, so it, it's, 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 um, it's, a, it, it's, it's a bit concerning to think about it in that way. I have no doubt. And I, and I also think that, that um, race and culture is going to influence that as well. Um, and I think particularly now, as we have seen more representation of people of color in newsrooms and all of that, that we have seen that stories are not exactly told the same way. I mean, I, I did say I, I felt nostalgic about Walter Cronkite. That's the way I began the program. But at the same time, there is this recognition that um, in, in, in a lot of those um, situations where we had just those three basic newscasts a day, or even as we began to initially increase the number of different news organizations, that you still got a kind of skewed news um, um, throughout the day, right? And so that we were hoping that I think that having greater representation in newsrooms across all of these um, uh, platforms would, would increase the trust and increase the um, uh, the the um, desire or of people to 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 cling more to these news organizations. But as I've listened to you all talk about still this major distrust, um, I think that what happened is that you you sort of got the the representation at the same time that you were getting the whole notion of how are we going to pay for this news. And so then that created a new and different intersection. And so we're still at a place where nobody's completely satisfied. Am I correct in that? And anybody can jump in on that one. Yes, nobody is completely satisfied. I mean, you know, we, we, uh, 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 we, we began to, to, to create more representation in newsrooms, but a lot of those people did not feel that they, uh, that, that they were welcome in those newsrooms and keeping people of color in newsrooms became a perpetual problem. Not a lot of progress was made. There was a lot of sort of hamster wheel activity. Uh, and then the internet came along uh, and um, these newsrooms began to shrink and diversifying newsrooms and, and changing news and uh, became much more difficult. Um, I think we've reached a point, although newsrooms are continuing to shrink, where as Jacob said, we're now beginning to reinvent the concept of what news is and should be. Um, and um, uh, from the ashes, as it were, we, we're, there's a direction now that I think we was less clear a few years ago. Well, that's encouraging. So thank you for that. I'm curious to know whether or not um, this also falls along generational lines. So do you find that, um, you know, even though you have news organizations that are looking at particularly the political stations, right, or, you know, the ones that spend many hours a day talking about politics um, are looking at generally moving along um, uh, political leaning lines, but also what, how does generational uh, gap, so generation Y versus generation X versus millennials versus baby boomers, how does all of that also influence what we hear on the news every day? Um, there are large generational gaps in where Americans are going. I think the biggest area is when you look at the pathway through which Americans are actually getting their news um, without a doubt areas like social media uh, uh, um, is much more of a common source for younger Americans, as we may expect, um, than older Americans are. There are also um, perhaps even um, more um, important to the story of, of, of trust that we're, that we're laying out here is um, this sense of loyalty um, between the generations. Um, the sense of connectedness that Americans feel. Um, and there are large generational divides um, when you start to look at, do Americans actually feel 
um, connected to their main sources, um, to where they're getting the news from? And the answer is younger Americans tend to feel much less connected to where they're actually getting their news from. Oh, Excellent. Yeah. Let, me, let me weigh in on this with, with two points. One uh, is in, in, in another era, we would get our news in news sessions. We would watch the evening newscast. We would get up in the morning, read the paper. We would listen to an NPR show as we drove home. Um, and we got it in these sort of doses of, uh, you know, 30 minutes or 15 minutes. Um, now, uh, news is consumed incrementally, story by story. Um, uh, and often, if it's in a social setting, in a social platform, you know, uh, here's, a here's a picture of my friend, and here's a news story, and it's not even news consumption, it's kind of just uh, um, media consumption, and news is part of it, uh, which makes uh, that connection to um, a particular news source even weaker, because you're not moving under the umbrella and sitting down on the sofa and saying, okay, CBS, do me for 30 minutes. Uh, or I'm reading the New York Times, you're like, no, I'm on Facebook and boom, boom, boom. The, uh, uh, the, the other uh, component of this um, is uh, in newsrooms today, there is a, a significant generational divide over uh, what journalism should be um, and um, whether journalism should uh, 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 be a form of advocacy or a form of inquiry, um, oversimplifying here a bit, but um, you know, my own definition of objectivity, which I've written a lot about in my books, is not that object is that objectivity is not neutrality, it's not stenography, it's not both sideism, but it is open-minded inquiry where you don't know the answer before you start your reporting, uh, and there's a method, a, a kind of professional method of reporting and verification that would do that. Um, there are real open debates about whether uh, the news should become more partisan in everywhere. Uh, and one of the factors I think there is that most Americans have never met a journalist, have never seen a journalist. The journalists that they see are people on cable television where they're getting a partisan model. So um, what do we even want from uh, journalism uh, and, and, and journalists is, is up for grabs right now. Um, one last point on this, and then I'll shut up, uh, is that um, uh, journalism always reinforces every phenomenon that it observes. So it is a, it is an enabler of polarization. Um, you know, we put on people from both sides, we tend to uh, grab extreme views, we give a lot of airplay to Ted Cruz and, and Tom Cotton and people who are, you know, on the edge in the Senate uh, or in the House. Uh, and same, you know, with AOC on the, uh, you know, in the Democratic Party, Fox, she's very popular on Fox. Um, and we reinforce and, and then uh, help create and amplify uh, the very things that we as uh, in journalism think are undermining our ability to be journalists. So no pressure on you, Jake, but, um, as, <laughs> but going back again, as you're preparing students um, for the future that that none of us knows exactly where we're going, but and that can be the fun part and it could be the dangerous part um, because the partisanship can get dangerous at, at points. And um, so the, my final question to you is, um, as we look kind of down the road a little bit um, beyond just looking at how revenue is, is uh, undergirding all of this media information. Um, what are we, what is it that we really want people to know about the field of journalism and why it is a great calling if that is so, if that's what you so choose? That's a, that's a really fantastic question. And what I try to do with my students and also with my research and just my general approach to journalism is I've actually found it really helpful to do sort of what you just suggested doing in your question, which is separate the revenue side of journalism and all of the challenges that journalism faces in terms of finding a sustainable business model from what I consider the quality side of journalism and the question of what should journalists be doing to make the news better 
Um, and obviously, you know, better is an, it's an abstract word. It'll mean what, what better, what that means is going to, to differ depending on the person who's pursuing that better journalism. But, you know, the idea is just how can we have a more constructive and honest conversation about what journalism needs to do so that people trust it more and not just so that it's trustworthy, but also that it earns the public's trust by being valuable and by being perceived as being honest and forthright and transparent because it is. What are those things that need to happen to make that so? Um, I find that that's, you know, it's really hard to, do, to separate those two things because uh, first of all, because the challenge right now of making journalism uh, economically viable is just so pressing. It's so, it's, it's oppressive almost. You know, you see so many newsrooms that are having to cut back or shutter all altogether. It's just, you know, it, it feels like, <laughs> it, it feels not helpful to say, let's separate those two conversations out. But on the other hand, if you have them joined together and you say, we're gonna find a solution to journalism's problems that'll solve both the trust part of it and the money part of it, in my opinion, I, I, I kind of think that that's asking too much from, from any single solution. And to at least begin the conversation, it's better to have them be distinct altogether. And that's why I, I think it's so exciting, you know, whenever I hear someone like Tom talk about the question of objectivity, because that is such a, a fraught term right now in a way that I don't think it was you know, a generation ago in journalism. And I think that that's really great. You know, I think that it's so cool to hear people within journalism um, having these very open discussions about what do we mean by objectivity? What does the pursuit of objectivity do to the production of news stories? Um, how does that fit in to a news media environment where we know that polarization is increasingly a problem and that people are increasingly distrustful. You know, is, is this perception of objectivity that we've held for a very long time, is that useful as a way of earning that trust and making journalism that we feel is representative of the people that we hope to, to reach? Um, do we feel that there is opportunity here to change the way we're telling these stories? Again, as Tom was saying, not to make them simpler bumper stickers, but to actually make them better, you know? I mean, I, I think that what we're seeing now is some real soul searching on the part of journalists where previously journalists, it seemed to me at least, were talking about how do we make the journalism uh, find an audience more easily, not necessarily by changing that journalism, which we see as being fundamentally intact and good as it is, but by changing sort of the window dressing to make sure that people are aware of this journalism and willing to pay for it. Um, now we're really seeing, I think, in a really more concerted way, thoughtful discussions among journalists about how should we change the work that we're doing to make it worth supporting and also to make it trustworthy. And so I find that to be a really exciting moment. Um, again, echoing what Tom was saying, I, I do think that it's an opportunity. Um, and I do try to impress that upon students um, by saying, you know, this isn't just about trying to find a way to pay the bills. It's about trying to find a way to make sure that the calling that you feel compelled to pursue is uh, being pursued for noble reasons and, and with the positive outcomes that you're, that, that you're doing it for. Well, I must say that as a journalism junkie, I really have appreciated this conversation today. And, um, and I just want to say that's all the time that we have for today. I could talk about this a lot, lot longer. But I want to say thank you again to Jake Nelson, Tom Rosenstiel, and Jeff Gottfried for this fabulous conversation. And to our listeners, we ask that you join us again for the next episode of Roundtables on Race. Goodbye.